This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 11, The Second Persian Invasion of Greece, Part 1. Take a short geography lesson so that we can understand the journey that the Achaemenid Persians would take to invade the Greek polis. If you were based in the Anatolian satrapies of Lydia and Ionia, which were the geographical regions of the Ionian Revolt, to travel to Greece, you would have to go northwards up the Anatolian coast where you would reach the important waterway of the Hellespont, which separates traditional Asian lands from the traditional European lands. After crossing the Hellespont, you are in the land of Thrace, where you will change direction westwards towards the Balkan Peninsula. Upon arriving in the lands of Macedonia, you switch direction again and head southwards into the Balkan Peninsula through the lands of Thessaly. This is where you arrive at the part of the Balkan Peninsula where the island of Euboea runs parallel to the mainland. Artemisium is the settlement in the very north of Euboea and Thermopylae is adjacent on the mainland. If you travel southwards between Artemisium and Thermopylae, you enter the waterway called the Euboean Gulf, which separates the island of Euboea from the mainland. Heading southwards on this waterway, you pass the Euboean cities of Chalcis and Eritrea to your left, and then Marathon on the Attica Peninsula to your right which was the site of last week's battle. You can then circumnavigate the Attica Peninsula to reach Athens and the small island of Salamis, which you will pass to reach the Isthmus of Corinth, the small strip of land that takes you from the bulk of the Balkan Peninsula onto the large landmass of the Peloponnese, home of the mighty Spartans. The Persians Now, due to the fact that there is so much action to pack into this episode in this epic period of classical world history, we're not going to go into too much detail about the history of the Achaemenid Persians because we covered it last week in the build-up to the Battle of Marathon. So if you want to learn more about the Persians going into the Battle of Marathon, then please do tune in to last week's episode. At the Battle of Marathon, the Athenians had outwitted the Achaemenid Persians and sent them packing back to Anatolia, 
with their tails between their legs. However, the Persian king, Darius the Great, was not prepared to accept this defeat and began planning a second invasion. But politics in the satrapy of Egypt and the death of mighty Darius the Great put this invasion on hold. In 486 BCE, Darius was succeeded by his son Xerxes, who spent the next few years preparing for the second invasion, not least of all by building bridges and canals to aid the journey of the land forces and the naval fleet on their journey from Anatolia to the Greek lands, as well as gathering the manpower from around the many corners of the vast Achaemenid Empire. The Greeks The Battle of Marathon had been fought by the Athenians with some minor assistance from other Greek polis. The biggest absence from this battle was the Spartans, who the Athenians called on for help, but due to their tradition of not engaging in military conflict during the religious festival for Carnea, they arrived too late to have any influence over the battle itself. This time, the Spartans, like many other Greek polis, would have no excuse. A refusal to stand alongside their fellow Greek polis would put them in direct danger, such was the might of the Achaemenid Persians. So it was an easy and obvious choice. If the Mycenaeans were indeed displaced from the Peloponnese by the Dorians, then it may have been these Doric Greek speakers who were essentially the first generations of the mighty and historic Spartan polis. It would not be long before the Spartan polis started to look outwards to those other societies of the Peloponnese with ambitions of subjugating them and using their population as their slave class. Walking through the earliest evolution of the Spartan polis, we can see that they remained relatively unchallenged as a nation due to the fact that everyone around them was not an internal threat to them. This did not make them militarily complacent, however. In fact, rather strangely perhaps, it had the opposite effect, with Sparta becoming a polis where their military prowess would actually become an ideological priority. Population eugenics were carried out to ensure that prime human reproduction took place in order to produce the best physical human soldiers. The slave class would work in order to sustain the military class, so that military personnel could devote their entire lives to military training. The Spartan hoplites were widely regarded as the masters of phalanx warfare. There was no love lost between the Spartans and Athens. These two polis of Greek lands were the two which had developed the most successfully, both of which had highly organised political systems with councils working alongside its leaders 
to ensure that the right decisions were being made for the good of the respective polis. Towards the end of the 6th century BCE, the Spartans were invited to interfere in Athenian politics, and this would very likely only serve to keep apprehensions about each other very high. Many would have questioned the Spartan motivation for delaying their support for the Athenian cause during the Battle of Marathon. Xerxes I Xerxes I was born in 519 BCE, son of Darius the Great and Atossa, a daughter of Cyrus the Great. So Xerxes shared the bloodlines of all the great kings of kings of Persia. We don't really know much about the childhood of Xerxes, but it was clear that his father saw Xerxes as his natural successor and by the time that Darius was required to settle a dispute in the Egyptian satrapy of the Achaemenid Empire, Darius made the necessary provisions for Xerxes to take over. Darius knew that he was an old man in his 60s and maybe he saw more in Xerxes than his eldest son Arto Bazan believed that it was his right to be the Persian king, but his mother was not the daughter of the mighty Cyrus the Great, so Xerxes was able to claim the throne with limited drama. Xerxes was in his late thirties at the time and appeared to be quite energetic towards his new role. He would successfully settle the situation in Egypt that his father had sought to extinguish and he appointed his brother Achaemenes as the satrap, meaning that he could turn his attention to a larger problem in Babylon. The Babylonians were particularly troublesome during the earliest years of Xerxes' reign and Xerxes dealt with this using a heavy hand. He would confiscate and even melt down the Babylonian sacred statue of Marduk, which represented their titular deity since the historic days of Hammurabi and the first Babylonian dynasty of the second millennium BCE. The Babylonians were powerless in the face of their emperor and Xerxes continued to look at the Babylonians with disdain, showing no interest in declaring himself as the king of Babylonia. Xerxes also understood the importance of the political situation between Achaemenid Persia and Greece. He continued his father's plan of seeking retribution for everything that had happened since the Ionian Revolt and the Battle of Marathon. One of the biggest dangers of taking a naval fleet across to the Balkan Peninsula was the risk of storms destroying the fleet. So keeping the naval route as close to the coastline as possible would safeguard the triremes, which were the Persian galleys, from possible destruction. So one of the actions taken by Xerxes would be to build a canal through the peninsula of Mount Athos 
in Western Thrace, which was still under Persian influence. Canal building was something that was carried out with confidence by the Persians. If we go back to volume 2, during episode 20, we spoke of there being evidence of a Persian canal being built to link the Nile River in Egypt to the Red Sea, which would have been a huge earthwork project. Themistocles Themistocles was barely an adult when Clisthenes made his democratic reforms of Athens in 508 BCE. And this would only bolster Themistocles' chances of becoming a prominent Athenian citizen. Not born of an aristocratic family, in 524 BCE, Themistocles was able to take advantage of the changes made to the Athenian constitution to carve out a political career for himself. He became an Archon of Athens in 493 BCE, with the Archons being the nine chief rulers of Athens who were elected as decision makers. During the first Persian invasion of Greece, which climaxed at the Battle of Marathon, we believe that Themistocles was there, and most likely commanding alongside Miltiades and Callimachus. With victory under their belts, the Athenians knew all too well that the Achaemenids would be back, and Themistocles believed that the Athenians would need to increase their naval power. So even though the Athenian hoplites had won the day at the Battle of Marathon, Themistocles was able to still convince the Athenians to triple their naval fleet, although as we will find out later, they will still be vastly outnumbered by the Achaemenids. Themistocles was more than happy to lead this new naval fleet himself. Leonidas I Leonidas was an elder statesman of the Greco-Persian Wars. Born in 540 BCE, third son of the Spartan king Anaxandridas II, there can be absolutely no doubt that Leonidas would have been trained from a young age to be a military expert, the typical upbringing of a Spartan, a nation for which military superiority meant everything. Leonidas would have been a young adult when his father died and he would see his older brother succeed him to become the Agiod king of Sparta, to become Cleomenes I. Now we have met Cleomenes I before because he was the Spartan king who assisted the Alcmeonid family and Clisthenes to depose the pisistratid tyrant of Athens, Hippias, and overthrow him from power. Now, you may recall that when we spoke of the constitution of Sparta during episode 8, that we mentioned that Sparta had two kings, in parallel contrast to Athens with its nine archons. The Spartan kings would be much better known for being military leaders, and there would be state rules that said such things as when one king is on campaign that the other must stay at home in Lacedaemonia. 
the real name for the Spartan polis. Cleomenes would fall out with his co-monarch, the Eurypontid king, Damaratus. Cleomenes would depose and replace Damaratus, and this would be viewed by Sparta as an act of insanity. His half-brother, Leonidas, would have Cleomenes imprisoned, where he would die, and Leonidas would then take the Agiad throne for himself in around the year 490 BCE. Leonidas would then marry Cleomenes' daughter and was accepted as king, possibly in part due to his reputation as being a formidable military leader. This would carry a lot of weight with the militarily minded Spartans who believed that military dominance was everything. Sparta viewed itself as a military powerhouse and Leonidas was a man who was well suited to lead such a race of people and the other kings would recognise the value of having Leonidas and his Spartans on their side when the time came. Prelude to the Battles The year was 480 BCE, ten years after the Battle of Marathon. Unlike his father, Xerxes decided to personally lead the campaign to Greece. Even though Xerxes had commissioned the construction of the canal at Mount Athos in order to assist his naval fleet to avoid the destructive storm forces of the open seas, he would have to ensure that his land forces could accompany the fleet along the coastal route to the Balkan Peninsula. In order to do this, he would have to bridge the Hellespont. The shortest crossing point across this waterway would have been just over one kilometre, so it was still a considerable task to transport the entire army across. Fortunately, we have Herodotus to tell us how Xerxes achieved this. It appears that Xerxes had already commanded the construction of a crossing at the Hellespont before the campaign had begun, but Xerxes was furious to discover that the two bridges had been destroyed by a storm. Xerxes' reaction is classic storytelling. Whether it's true or whether it's Herodotus's way of dressing up the character of Xerxes is unclear. However, we are told that Xerxes was enraged and beheaded those responsible for the construction of the bridges. Xerxes then punished the waters below for their part in the destruction and he and his army threw fetters into the water, whipped it and shouted at it. The waters would probably dare not cross Xerxes again. Xerxes would then have to construct new bridges and he would need to use old galleys to bridge the waterway and he would secure the bridges using flax ropes before using wood and soil to stabilise the entire construction so that the army and cavalry could cross safely. Once across the Hellespont, the route was clear for both the land and sea forces 
to advance to the Balkan Peninsula, tracking each other all the way round the coastline described at the beginning of the episode. The modern consensus regarding the amount of manpower mustered by Xerxes from all corners of the Achaemenid Empire is around a quarter of a million personnel. This might sound a bit disappointing compared to the figures of 2 million plus offered by Herodotus, but I still cannot personally recall talking of military force of this sort of size previously. This was a considerable operation, and if the Greeks had managed to resist the Achaemenids against the odds 10 years earlier, it was not likely to happen again. At around this time in history, we believe that there were several hundred poles of Greek culture. Around 70 of these poles allied with the Athenians and the Spartans, who were the two most powerful Greek poles, united in their desire to resist the Achaemenids. Make no mistake, Athens and Sparta had considerably different ideologies and were traditional rivals. However, they understood the very real and powerful threat of the Achaemenids and they both shared a desire not to lose what they had and not to become subject to the Achaemenids. Not all Greek poles were supportive of the Athens and Sparta alliance. Some were supportive of the Achaemenids, believing that their fortunes would ultimately be richer by siding with the Persian power. So it was now make your mind up time. If you were with the Allies, you contributed your military forces to them. And if you were with the Achaemenids, likewise you would submit your manpower to them. The combined forces of the Achaemenids under the command of King Xerxes had successfully marched through Thrace and Macedonia and were now approaching the lands of Thessaly. The Allied Greeks would need to decide their tactics. It would be Themistocles who would have the unenviable task of deciding what to do. With the sheer numbers of the Achaemenids approaching the southern Balkan Peninsula from the north, Themistocles knew that they were outnumbered. Heading the Achaemenids off in Thessaly would not be possible. Themistocles would need to pick a spot where he could equalise the Achaemenids. He would have to select a narrow pass between the mountains where the Achaemenids would need to proceed in limited numbers to give the Allied Greeks an opportunity to pick off as many Achaemenids as possible. The only place that Themistocles felt that he could do this was at a place called Thermopylae. The biggest problem with Thermopylae would be that it would be much further south than Themistocles would have liked. It would mean that the Allies would need to allow the Achaemenids to overrun Thessaly, which was arguably going to happen in any case. Secondly, if the Allies lost their position at Thermopylae, then it would leave the route to Athens wide open. So it was a one chance only opportunity the Allies to make it work. The Allied naval fleet, which if you remember from earlier in the episode, Themistocles bolstered in size, would be dispatched in the waterways between the island of Euboea and the Greek mainland, just off the coast 
of the northern Euboean city of Artemisium. Blocking this waterway would ensure that the Achaemenid naval fleet could be kept distant from supporting their land forces. So now the Greek army and navy knew where they were going to be dispatched. All they would do now is wait for the imminent arrival of Xerxes and the Achaemenids. The Battle of Thermopylae When it came to selecting the men to block the mountain pass at Thermopylae, you couldn't look far beyond the Spartans. As we have already learned, the Spartans were the most highly admired military force with genetically superior hoplites thanks to their eugenic method of population control. The mindset of Spartan warriors was to kill or be killed. So they fight to the death purely out of honour. Surrender was not an option. So a hoplite phalanx headed by Spartan warriors and led by the Spartan king Leonidas I was the allied Greeks' best opportunity for success. It was August 480 BCE and the battle was about to start. Despite being outnumbered, the Greek phalanxes led by King Leonidas were packed tightly together in their phalanx with their long spears and with the narrow pass equalising the amount of Achaemenid infantry that were able to engage with the Greeks. It appears that Xerxes deployed his archers in an attempt to reduce the numbers. However, Leonidas and his Greek allied hoplite forces maintained control of the pass at Thermopylae. The Achaemenids had been stopped at the pass thanks to Themistocles' wise decision to fight the battle there. Xerxes would need to change his approach as the Achaemenid archers appeared to not be reducing the numbers. He decided that the next move should be to send waves of infantry forward. After all, the Achaemenids did have the superior numbers, and substantially so. Surely by deploying waves of men at the Greek phalanxes, the Achaemenids would be able to wear them down. So Xerxes ordered the advance, but very quickly discovered the incredible toughness of the Spartan-led phalanxes. The waves of Achaemenids were not making the impact that Xerxes needed them to, and yet again he would need to rethink his approach. Xerxes would have an ace up his sleeve though. Among his ranks were an elite force of professional Persian warriors. Ideally Xerxes would have chosen to keep these warriors from direct engagement as they were the specially selected imperial guard but he needed something special and something that could take on the mighty Spartan hoplites. It would be the Persian elite soldiers attacking the Greek elite. Herodotus would call these elite Persian warriors, which number into the thousands, the Immortals. 
The Greeks, especially in the Spartans in their ranks, were not to be intimidated, however, and maybe even by some clever tactics such as feigning retreat and overrunning the advance, they were able to resist the immortals. Xerxes had spent the day attacking the Greeks and had made no headway. Night fell and the battle could not continue. The Achaemenid Persians would have to retire to camp and think again. On the second day, things went much the same way as the first day. Xerxes would deploy waves of infantry into the Greek phalanxes, but it was like running into a brick wall. It seemed as though the mountain pass at Thermopylae was impassable. It is at this point that we need to introduce a new character to the story, and the actions of this one man would be pivotal in the fortunes of the battle. The man's name is Ephialtes, and we can speculate that he was a humble local farmer who saw an opportunity to gain something with the value of his local knowledge. Ephialtes would approach the Achaemenid Persian camp, which had spent the best part of two days going nowhere in their quest to break through the Greek defences. What Ephialtes knew was that there was a means by which Xerxes could approach the allied Greek defences from the rear, and he was willing to provide that information to the Achaemenids, no doubt for some amount of favour. Xerxes would now be able to start day three of the battle with an added element of surprise. The Battle of Artemisium In the meantime, the Achaemenid Persian naval fleet were approaching the Allied Greek blockade at Artemisium. The Achaemenids should have felt very confident about having superior naval strength than the Greeks, despite our knowledge of Themistocles having trebled the size of the Greek fleet. Even with these incredible increases, we can still estimate that the Achaemenid fleet that left Asia would have had the Greek fleet outnumbered by four to one. However, before the arrival of the Achaemenid fleet at Artemisium, and all the efforts of Xerxes to reduce the risks to his naval fleet, it does seem that a storm took out a significant number of the Achaemenid fleet. Certainly not enough that the Achaemenid fleet did not still ridiculously outnumber the allied Greek fleet, but once again the Achaemenids would have to face the same issue of trying to engage as much of their fleet as possible in a very small area of water. Earlier in the episode we explained how Xerxes was able to control the rebellion of Egypt within the Persian Empire by instating his own brother Achaemenes as the satrap. While Xerxes was leading the land forces of the Achaemenids, he had Achaemenes leading his naval forces. Upon reaching Artemisium, Achaemenes 
could see that there was no way through to the Malian Gulf, which was the waterway adjacent to the land forces at Thermopylae. Achaemenes would attempt to send a contingent of his large number of ships around the island of Euboea, so that they could approach the Greek fleet from the rear. This was a long and arduous journey, such as the size of the island of Euboea. And if we guess that events at Thermopylae were taking place somewhat simultaneously, then time was of the essence. In another stroke of good fortune for the Greeks, the contingent of ships sent around the island of Euboea were caught up in another storm, and as such were destroyed, and reducing the overall amount of Achaemenid ships in Greek waters again. Even though this was now two major storms causing huge losses to the Achaemenid Persians, the numbers were still overwhelmingly in their favour. However, both the naval forces and the land forces of the Greeks were proving to be more than a match for the Achaemenids. Now we must return to Thermopylae and pick up on the story of Ephialtes, the local man who had approached the Achaemenids, who for two days had not found a route through the Greek army, fronted by the Spartan king Leonidas I. Ephialtes informed the Achaemenids that there was a small and relatively unknown mountain pass by which they could breach the Greek phalanxes and approach their army from the rear. So on the third day of battle, Xerxes would dispatch forces through the secret pass. And this did indeed cause surprise and chaos for the Greek army. Leonidas is reported to have ordered a hasty retreat from Thermopylae, and indeed most of the infantry would withdraw, knowing that they were now in serious trouble. Leonidas would not retreat though. He would stay and fight in typical Spartan spirit. With him would be his closest allies the legendary 300 Spartans and also 700 warriors from the polis of Thespiae and maybe a few hundred from Thebes. The futility of this stand was all too apparent. It was not possible for just over a thousand men to defend themselves against tens of thousands in what had become a battle to the last. The Thebans knew that the game was up and surrendered to the Achaemenids. We don't really have any kind of conclusive outcome for the Thespians. Legend tells us that the 300 Spartans, alongside their king Leonidas, fought to the finish. Herodotus tells us that those Spartans who lost their swords resisted with their hands and teeth. Why would Leonidas and the 300 Spartans fight this futile battle when they could have just attempted to retreat with the others? Maybe they knew that by fighting they would buy time for the retreat. However, we cannot ignore what the later Greek writer Plutarch claimed 
to be the words given to the Spartans on their way to war in regards to their shields. They were told to come back Itan Iepitas which translates to with it or on it. Spartans were expected to either be victorious or die fighting. And this is precisely what King Leonidas I and the 300 Spartans did. This was the dutiful and expected death of a highly conditioned Spartan citizen. The Battle of Thermopylae was over and the Greeks had been crushed. News of this disastrous result reached Themistocles who ordered an immediate retreat of the Greek naval fleet from Artemisium. There was no value in the defence of that stretch of water now. The naval fleet was needed further south. Of course, this was the problem. Thermopylae was strategically very advantageous compared to all other locations for the Greeks. So defeat at Thermopylae was something that the Greeks absolutely needed to avoid. The route was clear now for the Achaemenids to descend on the city of Athens, something that the Athenians fought so hard to protect just ten years earlier at the Battle of Marathon. Now there would be no way to protect it and the Athenians had to make the choice about whether to stay or go. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for this week, otherwise we're going to go on forever. This 5th century BCE in Greek lands is just full of activity, full of battles and military campaigns and, well, there's just too much to fit into one episode, so we're going to have to leave the story till next week. We've got a bit of a cliffhanger. The Achaemenids now have a clear route through to Athens and there's absolutely no way that the Athenians can defend the city, so what will happen next? We'll find out next week, but thank you so much for listening to this very exciting episode of the History of the World podcast. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, then why not consider financially supporting the podcast? We could always do with the support. It's uh, great to be able to buy new equipment, new books, etc., etc., that can really help the quality of the podcast. And if you do support the History of the World podcast, then you would probably do so at the Patreon webpage. So if you go to the History of the World podcast.com website, you can click through to Patreon. And if you sign up to make a monthly contribution for as little as $1 a month, you will be welcomed into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And this week we welcome in Thomas Westman and Lewis Kerr into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. So thank you very much, gentlemen. If you're unable to make a financial contribution, then you can still help the podcast. Wherever you listen to us, just rate and review the podcast. And we've had a couple of reviews this week. We've got Eco Nick 
from the United States of America has given us five stars and has put, wow, so informative. I love this podcast. Thank you for the continued education. And also Scanner Mike has reviewed the podcast. Also from the United States of America has put, I love the utter depth of information and presentation. As an avid fan of all things historical, especially the ancient world, I found myself listening to Chris every day and was disappointed when I caught up in a week. I have replayed his podcast several times while I await the each release. Goodness me. One week. He caught up in a week. That's some pretty heavy going there. Uh, but anyway, thank you very, very much. Thank you for those reviews. They really do make a difference. We received a message from Gunnar Langer. from um, he's, He sent message before as Gunnar so he's, he's been a long time listening he's put Chris I just listened to the first half of your Greek colonisation episode on my way to work just wanted to make sure that you are aware that Nestor's Cup from Ischia is actually on loan to the British Museum's Troy exhibition which is still open for another three to four weeks I think given you're UK based I wanted to make sure you're aware um, yeah the, um, yes there is the Troy exhibition on at the British Museum I haven't been down there personally um, and I might be able to catch it before it comes to an end. I do believe it ends around the 8th of March. Um, the British Museum, for anyone uh, who does live in and around London, obviously, is free entry. Um, I think the Troy Exhibition is uh, £20 for the tickets to enter that. So if you're interested in that, you might be able to get in there. Other than that, I mean, the British Museum is an incredible place to visit anyway. See so many different artefacts and, and things, ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, all the things covered in Volume 2 and then uh, far and beyond everything. It's way too, uh, way too much in the British Museum for me to list all the different items and individual uh, rooms and what have you here but um, if you're interested in this podcast then, and and you do live in London definitely go and uh, visit the British Museum, free entry as is uh, most of the London museums, most of the large London museums so get yourselves down there uh, Belinda from New Zealand has sent a message saying hi Chris I've just started listening to your Paleolithic episodes and I really enjoy them I wondered about the hypothesis around men and axes because many archaeologists speak about their belief that paleo societies would have been very, very different to our modern one. The questions raised around gender roles have no answers, but a conference that was filmed and posted to YouTube had the female experts all basically saying that there's a strong possibility that women had to make tools, hunt, cook and forage and that men may have been child carers and cooks as well. I wondered if axes were made to show off male prowess or if prehistoric humans may have carved to show off their skills. Could early humans have done things for kudos? Possibly a bit of both. Anyway, thank you for your work. I wish I was as well read as you so obviously are. Oh, thank you. Very kind of you, Belinda. Um, but um, how you know, regardless of how well read I am, I still don't really know the answers to all these questions. These large hand axes, these oversized hand axes that human beings created way back when we we it was in prehistory, so it was before writing. So we don't have any sort of contemporary writings telling us why they were created. But they they were certainly too big to be practical. So we speculated as to whether men were creating them to 
make their make their female counterparts think that they were the greatest man in the tribe, for example, and that they could provide them the, with the mightiest offspring. But um, Belinda has put another angle on that, and it's very interesting indeed, and a very interesting discussion. And uh, with prehistory, the beauty of it is, I think, that we can all have an opinion on it. We don't necessarily need to be scientific experts. So um, great email. Thank you, Belinda. Belinda also went on to reference the uh, episode about speech and language um, that I think was way back, it was like something like the sixth episode we made uh, back in 2018. And uh, she recommended the book uh, The Wisdom of the Bones, which looks at uh, ancient human bones and looks for the clues about um, what uh, what we did and what we what we didn't do. And um, she mentions that there's a hypothesis about um, the uh, the midsection of the vertebrae evolving to enable us to speak. So uh, maybe an interesting reference book there if you like that subject. Uh, we've got another message from Tom Cavari who put, Chris, I know you probably don't want to receive correspondence from the listeners every time they enjoy a, a bit of your podcast, but I'm binging on volume two and I just had a bit of a chuckle after episode three where you get into your accent and all of that. I myself had you pegged for an Essex bloke. Despite my Eastern uh, European last name, I grew up in Margaret Thatcher's England, a proper little Cockney boy in central London. When my family emigrated to the US in the 80s, it was right when Crocodile Dundee was very popular and I got asked quite a bit in school to recite the Paul Hogan line, Oi, that's not a knife. So I can completely relate to Americans mixing up British and Australian accents. I had a good laugh. Um, And then he goes on to say, I myself did my graduate work in social psychology and cultural anthropology at Montana State University and I'm a disciple sort of of the late psychologist and cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker so I especially enjoyed the bit where you explore the development of religion you're doing a fantastic job Tom well thank you Tom wonderful email um, and uh, yeah you know the the exploration of religion is like well, I've said so many times an unavoidable part of our history and uh, teaches us so much about what the potential motivations behind what we did. When you look at some of the monumental building projects that modern day people act like they scratch their heads over how they built these things, pyramids and ziggurats, um, you know, Gebekli Tepe, places like that, Stonehenge, you know, religion had to be a major motivating factor so when you see the power of religion over the human being um, I know it's brought a lot into question in the modern world the power of religion over over the human being but when you see some of the great things that religion has stirred us into doing um, sometimes you have to be in awe of it and you certainly can't ignore it so uh, great stuff anyway I've rambled on for long enough I do like to give everyone the time of day who uh, does send me a message so if I didn't read your message out I apologise don't forget to give me a nudge and tell me off because I receive messages through so many different forums I do miss some by accident sometimes and I, and I don't like to do it but I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast next week we continue this fascinating story about the second Persian invasion of Greece 
Uh, we see the Greeks retreating now and the Achaemenids looking ever, ever stronger. So what will happen next? You'll have to tune in next week to find out. So until next week, have a fantastic week, everybody. Uh, stay safe and that's not a knife. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.